Welcome to episode two of the Lost in Citations podcast. I'm joined by Chris Haswell, the Associate Professor of Languages and Cultures at Kyushu University. Chris, how are you? I'm doing very well. Yourself? Is it okay to call you Chris or should I call you Christopher P. Haswell? Sorry, Christopher G. Uh, Haswell. Uh, Christopher G. Uh, is what I go through, uh, what I use when I'm uh, publishing, but uh, Chris is fine. Chris is fine. Okay. So Kyushu University, for people who don't know, it's the, the fifth ranked university in Japan. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I did my best. Um, it's, uh, it's, of course, mostly down to the uh, investments and that we get uh, into the university for our research into uh, things like um, chemistries and uh, engineering um, that has really helped boost the uh, the rankings. But uh, yeah, we're all pretty chuffed about it. The reason why I'm interested in the rankings is I was doing a bit of research on test anxiety. And I think there was some statistic maybe 10 years ago that I think 65% of the CEOs in Japan have graduated from the top 10 schools in Japan. So people are a bit obsessed um, about where you graduate from here. Uh, yeah, more than just a bit. I think it's like 75% of the uh, politicians as well come from either Tokyo University or Kyoto University. And there's that, that phenomenon of, of Ronin, where people don't go to university right away, and they take two years to study for the entrance exam of the... see i didn't i didn't get that before i before i came to japan that's not really common in america where you take two years off and then enter late is that something that people do in england as well depends if you want to go to uh one of the if you want to go to either oxford or cambridge then uh if you mess up uh your uh entrance exams the first time because they're just generally entrance exams on a point system well i don't know what it is now this is what it was like 20 years ago when i was doing it um and if you if you didn't get enough points, then you might sit out a year, do the exams again and try it again. Um, but, yeah, we don't really have that culture um, of needing to go to a name brand university so much mm. in England. Yeah, yeah, my wife's my wife's sister's son, he got into a pretty good school in Tokyo and then he mm. decided, no, I don't want to go there. So he took a year off to study for the mm. entrance exam of another school. And I just thought that was mm. ridiculous. Maybe maybe he likes his parents more than me, but I wanted to get out of I wanted to get out <laughs> of the house as soon as possible. I was happy with my my choice. Uh I think uh when it matters so much the name of the university, I can see people investing that extra year when they're young. Um but I, I, I mean it, it's odd for a university professor to say, but I I think oftentimes especially for people who don't have a clear vision of where they want to go, or what they want to do, um, then maybe deferring entering university until you've had a little bit of work experience might be uh, in many people's best interests, not just in Japan, but uh, elsewhere as well. All right. Well, let's, let's jump into the article. Thank, thank, thanks for joining the show. I, I actually mentioned you on the first episode. We talked mm. a little bit about linguistic imperialism which i i want to get into a bit later but let's let's jump into the article so the article the article's name is a global model of english how new modeling can improve the appreciation of english usage in the asia pacific region all right so first first question you you mentioned in your background that the studies have gone from purely linguistic to the sociolinguistics into the field of applied linguistics um maybe i'm this is a dumb question but what's the difference between sociolinguistics and applied linguistics? Uh, the way that I would uh, define it is that uh, sociolinguistics is the inter intersection of society, culture, and language, but it's not necessarily um, applied. It's not necessarily put into practical usage. So a lot of the work in the field is kind of putting out these concepts and, and ideas, and, and one of the things um, that I wanted to do with creating this model was to make it more practical. And so the applied linguistic side might it might be how you could put it into a methodology or you could put it into a curriculum and then study how that uh, affects the attitudes of the students or the teachers and the and the linguistic outcomes. So of those of those three, uh, so yeah. pure linguistics, sociolinguistics and applied linguistics, which 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 of those three are you more interested in? Uh, sociolinguistics. Um, much of my uh, most of my career in Japan up until the last four or five years has mainly been 
uh, on the practical in classroom curriculum side. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but my uh, research has usually been in the sociolinguistic side, the ideas, the concept side of it. So I wanted to try and bring those two together where a lot of the, where the work that was being done in the field of sociolinguistics could be uh, given a practical application uh, in the language classroom. All right. So this, this, this article was written in 2013. Where, where were you mm-hmm. in your career at this time? Had you finished your PhD? Uh, no, actually, this was a um, this this document comes from uh, a section of my background, my my lit review chapter that my professor specifically told me to take out oh. because and and I quote, no one's interested in that. Huh. Um, so she was much more interested in the linguistic side, historical linguistic side of uh, English, and felt that this was a little bit too. Um, you know, wishy-washy. It wasn't really connecting with the main focus of my paper, which was on the uh, the attitudes of Asian students of English towards the use of English in Asia. Um, and so she felt that this was a little bit, it was sidetracking me too much. Um, in 2013, I wasn't uh, in, oh no, I had just arrived in Fukuoka. I'd, I'd spent seven years working at uh, Ritsumeikan Asia Pacific University down in Oita. And that's ranked 20th um, in the country, right? Again, uh, another another uh, <laughs> university that has uh, benefited from my experience. And uh, no, they've really rocketed up the the rankings uh, in the last uh, ten years since I left, actually. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a lot to do with the weighting of the of the rankings, because uh, as you may or may not know, as your listeners may or may not know, uh, it's an incredibly unusual school. Uh, where 50% of the students come from outside of the country and 85% of the faculty got their final degree from a non-Japanese university. Mm. So uh, that's it's a real outlier, but it's helped them build this uh, global brand. And so while I was working there, I got the idea for my PhD. I My contract expired and I had to move to Fukuoka. I was working at Fukuoka University when I was writing this paper. Um, and it really was just me trying to... Um, uh, you know, find some practical application for this, for all this work that I'd done that now had to be cut out of my final thesis. So I was, it was in, in parallel as I was doing my uh, data analysis and writing my thesis, I was writing this paper as well. Well, let, let's talk about that dynamic between your advisor slash supervisor, your dissertation, and then post PhD mm-hmm. work. So a, as you're going through this, did you have a strong opinion that she was wrong? Or were you did you lack confidence in, in knowing what other people like, what, what's your opinion? Cause I, I'm going through this process, the beginning stages of it where I have to mm. sort of accept, you know, you're in, you're, in a, you're, you're not really in a power position and you're in an ignorant mm. position. At least, at least I am. And so I, I'm, I'm going to the field of psychology, which I'm quite ignorant, ignorant about. I have certain opinions mm. about things and then maybe I disagree and then I, maybe I'll file it away. And, and later on I'll look back and say, okay, I could do something with that at the time. How did you feel about it? Did you strongly disagree with her at the time? I really wasn't, as you say, in a position to strongly disagree with her. I was very interested in it, and I knew that it was something that um, I was going to want to come back to. So I cut it out. I cut the chapter out, but I just kept when I couldn't make any progress in my other in my thesis. I just went, kept going back and noodling with it until it kind of formed this paper. Um, uh, and yeah, I think we've had this discussion off the air where I just said to you, there's, there's going to be rabbit holes. There's going to be things that you can do a deep dive on and you get really excited about. Keep that, put it in a document somewhere, label it well, um, and then keep dipping back into it when the, you need something to you know, spur your inspiration, either during your thesis writing or afterwards. Um, because kind of that's what I've done post um uh, thesis there is and having that is really quite important because uh when you're in the middle of a phd uh you really don't know what is or isn't important that's where the advisor comes in so i it, you know, eventually accepted her opinion but when you finish your phd it's like um it's like losing a friend because you you've you've been working with this thesis this document on a daily basis for you know, many, many months at this point, years, in, in fact, in, in some uh, cases. I mean, my PhD took eight years to to complete because I, you know, never took any time off work to do it. I studied on the weekends and the off hours. And and um, you're really going to want to have that thing to go back to 
that will give you the inspiration to keep moving forward because sometimes um, I've uh, had conversations with um, uh, friends of mine in the in the neurosciences um, uh, groups um, uh, when there and there is significant research into post thesis depression mm. um, feeling that you don't have a, a guiding principle to to go to so having that to go back to and kind of keep the kind of energy the momentum uh, will be important uh, after you finished it. I'm really surprised to hear this story because I remember you telling me that your advisor had told you something wasn't important and then you turned it into a paper and that paper is the most uh, one of the most cited ones. Mm. I, see, I, I assume this this was this was the result of your PhD studies because I the, my my impression of dissertations is you have to come up with your own model. Am I wrong on that? Like, why was this? I'm interested what her opinion was at the time because you're creating a new model. Isn't that what a PhD is supposed to do? Well, interestingly, if my PhD had been on this topic, then this model would have been probably more widely publicized. And uh, around about the same time, there were um, uh, people publishing clearly um, uh, graduate level work on this on in this area. There's a model by um, uh, I'm trying to uh, by Pung that came out in 2013, exactly the same time, where they were going back to the Daniel Jones model from the 1930s that Katru included in his Three Circles paper in 1985, um, revisiting it uh, in a master's thesis and trying to you know refit it to retrofit it to to the modern era. Um, so clearly, this was something that was going on. Um, the the actual creation of the new model that exists in the paper and I've gone on to develop with uh, my research partner Aaron Hahn um, uh, that model only exists because of the feedback that I got from the journal like I hadn't created the the model when my professor told me to take the section out so it was mostly descriptive it kind of uh, the work that was included in the in the chapter basically stopped roundabout um, where it says post 2000 models, market forces and the mm -hmm. denativized focus on page uh, 129, it kind of kind of petered out there and it was in a kind of development stage. And she's like, oh, this is, you know, descriptive and, you know, it's um, it's it's fine, but it doesn't really fit with the, the theme of your paper. So so take it out. And I and I was like, no, I think I think it should say and she's like, no one's interested in this. Take it out. And then that was the last thing we ever spoke about it. Um, when I <laughs> no when more I Christmas cards take, after that. <laughs> no, I needed to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, you know, listen at her knee um, for the next three and a half years after that. But um, no, it was it really was one of those things of well, there's no point fighting for it because she's right; it doesn't really fit. I think it's interesting, but who am I to say? So, all right. Well, um, be before we get into the paper, what so what what was your dissertation focus on then? If it wasn't about this this model, it was on. Um, uh, the, my, my thesis, uh, was on the attitudes of Asian learners of English and users of English towards the use of English in Asian. So as, as I said, I was working at Ritamek and Asia Pacific at the time, and I took the opinions of the Japanese, Asian and Chinese students studying at the university, mm -hmm. a highly internationalized university and compared them with regular Japanese university. So I compared them with Scuba University, which is also fairly well ranked university. I think that's if it's not top 10, it's top 15. Um, Tokyo Keizai, Tokyo um, Economic uh, University uh, for my comparisons in Japan. I compared the Korean students at uh, Ritsumeikan to the Korean students at Yansei and Kangwon uh, mm. universities in Korea. And then uh, I compared the Chinese students at APU with the students at Zhejiang University in China. Mm. And I looked at how the experiences on an entirely internationalized campus changed the attitudes of those three populations of students towards the use of English, uh, both in the classroom, on the campus, and perhaps in their future uh, careers. What, what were the findings of that? Did, did, they, um, did they vary between nationalities? Uh, it, they did. The... Um, the the findings were that the the students at uh, APU, all three populations, when compared to their um, compatriots, were 
the students at APU were much more positive about using English. They, they kind of saw it for what it was on campus, mm -hmm. which was a, a tool of uh, a mutually foreign language, which was a tool of communication. They weren't as worried about it or as stressed by it. But the main finding that I went on and, and published in another couple of papers and a, and a book chapter as well um, was on the, the kind of stresses that you wouldn't expect um, students to experience. For example, um, whereas the students in Korea and China and at the regular uh, universities in Japan had no face-to-face -face experience of, uh, you know, this person is Korean, this person is Japanese, but they don't, this person, the Korean person doesn't speak Japanese, the Japanese person doesn't speak Korean, but both speak English. Mm. And so they try to have communication using this mutually foreign language. And the performance varieties that occur cause them stress. Mm. Um, in trying to understand what the other person is, is saying. And what I actually did is I followed up with focus groups at the university, um, but only single uh, nationality groups. So the Korean students together, the Chinese students, the Japanese students together. And even though they knew they were being recorded, they were anonymous and they came out with quite interesting um, uh, ways to characterize the performance varieties that they were experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis with their friends, roommates, classmates, and also their professors hmm. who are also, you know, uh, from outside Japan. And they were able to come up with what I term named varieties. And they would say, the Japanese students would say that Korean English is bad and the Chinese students would criticize the Japanese English. And like the, and they would say that they had problems with Indian and Philippine, Vietnamese, you know, Bangladeshi English, and they'd experienced it on in their classrooms on campus in their life whereas the students in china and korea and, and other places in japan they knew it as a concept like asian english's performance variety of it as a concept but they'd never experienced it and so the the recommendation the main recommendation of my uh, thesis was that universities should do more to address this uh, of course they're not going to be able to you know, have not have students communicate, but they need to address how to mitigate negative opinions, pejorative opinions, and turn it into a positive rather than a, a negative that kind of cements the attitude that British or American English is superior because they can understand it better. Because the people they're going to work with in the future in English are not going to be British or American or Australian. They're going to be from the Philippines or from Vietnam or from China. So there's a reality that needs to be addressed. Um, in highly internationalized universities. Um, interestingly enough, that led into the study that I've been doing for the last three years on international teaching assistants. Mm. Um, because in my experience at APU, I used to be the TA coordinator for the English program. And I saw how um, TAs from all over the world uh, became that bridge in the class. Um, they mm. became uh, models of highly proficient users of English as a second language in front of the Japanese students. And so I, I was, I've been investigating that for the last three years uh, to see whether it actually does, you know, fill this, fill this role and what, what we could do more to mitigate these problems. What, what made you interested in sociolinguistics? Why um, did you choose it as your, your PhD focus? Uh, when I was doing my master's degree, uh, the, a lot of it was, I, I made two uh, realizations during that time um, that I I really enjoyed global Englishes and world Englishes and that kind of falls into the sociolinguistic side of it um, and I really didn't like um, systemic functional grammar mm. um, and the kind of uh, who does <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to I don't want to step on any of your colleagues' toes but. Do they really like outside it or they just chose it for a PhD? I always wonder about that. The people that go um, that route, do they really like it or they just are good at it and they decided to do it? Maybe that's an interesting thing I, to say. Well, I think it's a little bit from column A, column B. Um, they, if you're good at it, if you can actually in real time um, break down uh, single utterances and kind of mathematize uh, the the functions of grammar, if you can actually see it, um, like the scene in A Beautiful Mind where there's mm. just that flash and you're just like, oh, that's the predicate and that's the, you know, that's the, uh, that's the residual and that's it, you know, then, uh, then, yeah, I think you'd, uh, you would be drawn towards it. Um, it is quite a stale, sorry, people who are listening who are into <laughs> functional grammars, but it is quite stale 
I find. Um, and it does kind of take some of the the romance out of the language when, you know, someone can break it down into these kind of, as I say, like mathematical patterns. Um, uh, and so it, it, it didn't draw, didn't draw me in. Do you, do you believe, this is a quick side note, but do you believe in that theory that there's an under underlying almost genetic DNA grammar in all humans? I forget the guy who, who thought of that. It's a famous, famous dude. Chomsky. You're talking about the, the kind of language processing system that Chomsky yeah. came up with? Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you believe universal in that? Grammars? Yeah. Universal grammar. Do you believe in that? Uh, um, well, I don't know enough about uh, other languages to say that that it it doesn't. I can't disprove it. I mean, whenever you start to learn another language, you start to see the system within it, and you you know you're kind of trying to translate and work out um, you know where's the verb, where's the this and and the and the adjective, and how does that work, and can you um, how can you change it? Um, but so I can't say that there isn't. I would just say that the more you get into functional grammar and the more you can, there's that hand raise of like, yeah, but what about? And then they have to come up with a new coding or a new system to explain the the outlier because language is so uh, flexible, malleable. Um, you can have so much fun with it. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, I'd raise um, all the time when I'm writing about, you know, my work with the global model is that English doesn't have uh, an academy or... Uh, a school that tells you what is or isn't English. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some wonderful uh, TED Talks by a, a lexicographer called um, Aaron McKean, who goes into um, the fun of uh, being a vexillologist and putting together dictionaries. Uh, and dictionaries being descriptive but not being proscriptive. So they don't tell you what a word can and can't be. Um, and functional grammar seems to tell you what grammar can and can't be. And then when... Uh, I can't remember the guy, but it's like the the idea that that something that is can't not be. Mm-hmm. So when you come up with a, an example of something that isn't in the functional grammar, they have to go back to the book and you know find the thing that answers the question or, or come up with a new code for it. Um, so I just think it's it's a it's it's an unromantic way of of looking at uh, something that is so alive um, as the English language. All right, so so sociolinguistics. Uh, let's let's jump into the paper. Uh, there's a few things that, that, that jump out to me first, uh, maybe people know this, maybe people don't, I'm sure people in linguistics know, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure who's listening to this podcast, but there are more, there are more people that speak English as a second language, much more than speak, Mm -hmm. speak English as a, as a first language. And one of the interesting things about the paper was you talked about native English speakers and non-native English speakers and how there's a sensitivity mm. towards categor- categorization. I actually found this mm. in a paper that I wrote where I was, I, I was, I was commenting that native Japanese speakers might be more empathetic towards silence in the classroom than uh, native English speakers. And the the journal editor told me that I can't say that essentially that you you can't you can't categorize people as native or non-native when where I thought this is kind of a reverse thing where I'm not talking about native English speakers as, you know, a standard, I'm talking about how native Japanese speakers are more sensitive to cultural issues. So this was, Mm -hmm. this, this, this faced me directly, even though I'm not really researching the same things that you're researching. I mean, since this paper, since I wrote this paper, I mean, you can, you can track how, um, sensitive people have gotten to the, uh, to the concept of the dichotomy to this, this idea that there is such a thing as a, as a native English or a non-native English speaker. And, um, it does track along with other trends in, in our current society, mm. um, that we'll not get into here, but, um, the woke uh, English, <laughs> wokelish. Um, but again, that it's, they're entirely right. People that say that isn't such a thing as, um, the, the, the quote that I put in here, this idea of a, of a dichotomy, the idea that um, what it tends to do when you agree that there are these two categories, what also then tends to happen is uh, you put greater weight on the opinions of what is correct or incorrect on the person who's been speaking it all their lives. Whereas, as we know, there are people in the world, many people in the world that use English as their only language, daily language, who are incomprehensible to either of us. Mm-hmm. 
simply by the choices that they make in lexis and grammar and their pronunciation. And but they would be classed in the in the group of native speakers, whereas there are people highly proficient users of the language who use it at a level that you wouldn't know that they hadn't spoken it from birth. Um, but they know the 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 issues that they have to work through to get to that level of proficiency. So they probably understand it more and would be better teachers. They would be better researchers and analysts of the language than any native speaker would. So the the problem that you have to deal with is, as I did in the paper, is to is to say, okay, I understand that there's all of this other um, discussion going on, but for purposes of convenience, because I can't get into it into it in a 6,000 word paper, I'll just use these labels here, but I'm recognizing that there is this, uh, that there is this discussion. Um, I'm surprised to hear that you, that this kind of, uh, discussion would occur with a, a language like Japanese, which is so, um, tied in with a single geographical region, a, a single geographical unit of Japan. I'm thinking about it now. Maybe they had an issue that I wasn't considering, those people that are in the the center of your core, which we're going to talk about the model in a second, that I was just considering native English speakers, native native Japanese speakers, and I wasn't I wasn't taking into account other 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 teachers how their view on it. But but really, I was just thinking that okay, native English speakers and everybody else are going to be less sensitive possibly to a native Japanese person, not not even a native Japanese speaker, just a native Japanese person. Who understands Japanese culture? So maybe they had I an think, issue. I wasn't maybe included. maybe they, you, were, you were conflating because um, that's that's a cultural thing. I don't think it's a. Um, uh, I don't think it's necessarily connected to the language, uh, mm -hmm. unless you're dealing with just just specifically the idea of pausing before speaking rather than just. Um, uh, but I mean, native English-speaking cultures, for example, in the UK would probably be more um, receptive to the idea of silence before speaking mm. than, say, for example, general uh, 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 American users of English who, who like to keep the volume up and, and keep mm. and keep the, the back and forth going and uh, um, more than um, uh, perhaps British speakers. It's, there, are, there are generalizations, but I think that's more of a cultural uh, thing than it maybe it is a linguistic thing. All right, so that, that kind of leads into the other interesting thing. You talked about a few different models before you got into your model. And one of, mm -hmm. one of, the, one of the topics you discussed was this global model, which, which, mm -hmm. which is more linked to economics, right? About how, where people invest their money on education, which style of English is possibly more preferable to, towards their future. Is that is that what you, you talking, were going for there? Are you talking about Are you talking about uh, Park and Wee, two thousand nine? Oh, sorry, uh, not the, the not the sorry, model. not the global model, the market based model. I yeah, spoke. Um, um, this is it is economic, but it 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 ties into the forms of capital. Um, as I note uh, from Pierre Bordeaux, the the kind of the the economic, the the social, and the, and the cultural capital, and that language falls into a, a social capital. Um, and you know, economic capital, you can buy and sell things. You could be a millionaire one day, and because of a stock market crash, you could be, you know, have nothing. Um, someone could bequeath you money, so you go from zero to a uh, million dollars. The that kind of capital is is very fluid, um, and uh, you know can be it can change forms, but it it is it's uh, it, it's a fluid form of capital. Social capital takes a long time to build up. So language is something I can't get. I can't become proficient in Japanese and then pass that on to you um, in the same way that I can't be uh, absent a massive head trauma. I can't go from being fluent in English to you know, you know completely uh, useless in the language in a very short space of time. All of these changes in, in, in capital take time, in social capital take time to build up and, and possibly lose. Um, and what the market forces model suggests by making it like the stock exchange where would people like to invest their social capital their mm. time their energy and yes sometimes in i mean uh, uh having discussions uh, in my family at the moment about whether to send kids to cram schools or whether to go to you know certain different uh, middle schools and high schools um because of 
what that will lead to in terms of their their abilities further down the line. Um, so that's what that model is. So it's it's it uses the image of the economic model of the of the economic uh, capital to explain how people invest their time and energy and sometimes money into gaining social capital in the form of a readily usable and um, comprehensible proficient form of English. Well, this and, this ties in yeah. a bit to your model where you know 20 years ago maybe you know Japanese people had a bit more money they were sending you know their children to America and England now it's much more right. expensive to do so especially to England and people now there's the Philippines and these yes. are sort of acceptable places where you can learn English and and it's not sort of looked down upon as before right yeah it's interesting because i was in the philippines um for uh work on a on a project for listening um, with a, a, another colleague of mine. Um, and we'd kind of observed that this was where the Philippines was going as a kind of educational tourist destination, mm-hmm. um, building these resorts and building the infrastructure. Uh, we were in Cebu, which is a, a, a touristy type place. Like one end of the island is all, you know, sectioned off barbed wired. Um, and then it's just this marvelous, beautiful resort. Um, but then you get into town and the only places that are safe to kind of walk around or considered safe to walk around would be this one shopping center and the, uh, medical university. And then this hub of hotels downtown and the suggestion is don't go out of these different areas. And I think that, um, the Philippines kind of, uh, put in those like, okay, what is our, you know, what is our social capital that we can kind of, you know, make economic capital out of it. And it was, um, the history of uh, using English, um, thanks to the well, inverted commas, thanks uh, to um, uh, the U.S. Um, and uh, and other um, uh, invasions, um, that has kind of given them this this complex, um, but now highly valuable uh, linguistic history. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, I, I've heard a lot of Japanese people going to Cebu. You know, even Australia, New Zealand is sort of extremely expensive. You know, yes. comparatively, and so there's this there's this really close. I, I don't hear a lot of Japanese people going to Singapore or Taiwan, even though Singapore and Taiwan seems to have higher levels of of English ability in their citizens. But it seems like Cebu is the place to go. Well, it's it's the invest it's it's the flip side. It's not whether Japanese want to go; it's whether um, Singapore and, and Taiwan have built these facilities. I mean, mm. the Philippines have invested heavily in, uh, you know, building these two three week. Uh, English camps mm-hmm. that uh, I think really appeals. It's got a, it's got a it's got a it price. It's got a good price point. It's got the the cultural side of it. It looks like a you know it looks like a holiday at the same time. Um, and so yeah, I think it 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 that is more appealing. All right, than, well let, let's let's jump into the model. Why don't you explain the model? And I guess my question is that you can answer after explaining: Is the Philippines the core of the model? Interesting. Okay. So, um, as explained in the paper, uh, the, the, uh, global model has, uh, three stages to it. So you, you picture the world, picture the globe, uh, on the surface of the globe are all of the locations, uh, on the globe, just as you would see, uh, on a map. Um, and so you are able to say, well, there's, you know, there's, you know, there's British English in the UK and there's uh, American English over here. But then even within the, the US, you've got Southern, you've got Northern, you've got Appalachian, you've got uh, California. And so you're able to see the location. You're able to kind of like identify the locations of the varieties. And if the people in those locations never change how they produce the language, uh, don't improve their proficiency in, in, in various ways, but they just use it every day as as they would have done before, then they remain on the surface uh, as users of uh, the variety in that location, if they begin to uh, improve their ability to negotiate their performance by changing the lexus, by changing their grammar, by changing uh, their stress patterns and pronunciation and enunciation based on the person who they're speaking to. So just imagining a, a tourist coming to uh, California or coming to London. If that tourist asks them a question, and they understand the question, they give an answer without considering the the other person's ability to receive that, um, you know, just by 
even small things by slowing down their, their rate of speech, um, then if they don't change it, it's going to be more difficult for this tourist who's using English as a foreign language to understand the response first time. The second time, if the person says, excuse me, can you repeat yourself? And they don't change their performance. They just give exactly the same, uh, you know, incomprehensible uh, answer. Then they remain on the surface. The person they're speaking to has moved into the outer core because they're using English as a foreign language and they're trying to achieve a linguistic goal to ask a question, get directions, um, you know, make a comment. Now, can and, I, let me, let me uh, interrupt sure. you real quick. So now in your, when I, when I saw you speak, which I mentioned in, in the first podcast, this is how mm. you, you apply the sociolinguistic studies to applied linguistics in your teaching where you, you yeah. make a concerted effort where students not not necessarily fail, but that they go through a trial and error phase, which which is something mm -hmm. that helps them go from the surface level to the to the inner core um, mm. by actually negotiating and try and not just giving up, essentially. Exactly that giving students the um, because. Let's just let's just let's take Japan as a as an example. I know your listeners would be from different locations. Let's take Japan as an example. Um, oftentimes, the way that English is taught in Japan um, would using the global model, it would try to move them from Japan around the surface, never leaving the surface, and try to push them towards being um, users of British or American English. So, what this does with your language teaching um, is it makes you it, it, you want to make the students um, set the goal for the interaction. So that's the most important thing. And then use their intention to reach that goal as the energy for the class activity or the, or the thing that you're trying to set up with them. So um, what we talked about in the in the presentation was uh, negotiation uh, skills. So not trying to make, you know, create perfect grammars. Um, I mean, of course, for the first time, for the first question, for the first part of the interaction, go with what you think is is the best. But if it doesn't work, then be ready to change uh, the the lexis that you use, the grammatical construction, uh, maybe shorten the sentence, uh, request through uh, nonverbal cues, uh, like gesturing to see if the person understood, um, summarizing what you're saying again, changing the, the word stress or the sentence stress that you use in your, in your speech to make yourself as comprehensible as possible to the interlocutor in that, um, communication. Okay. Um, so you have, you have the surface, you have the outer core. Yeah. And then you have the inner core. These are these are the people that core, are more highly attuned to cultural issues and linguistic issues. Everything. So these will be the people who um, understand that they may not be the most proficient person in the conversation. Um, they may not be, depending on the location of the interaction, they may not be culturally the the best person. Um, uh, they may not be the, the the most attuned person. But it's the recognition of that that makes them work harder than the other person in the conversation. Um, since we published this article in 2013, uh, myself and, and Aaron um, have looked at interaction patterns and uh, we've looked at uh, mutually or unilaterally negotiated speech where one of the parties is doing all of the work or both people are working to achieve a goal. That Those things are different. Um, mm -hmm. And also that's where culture comes in, that one group of people might be more willing to, you know, get involved in negotiation practice than others. Well, let, um, let, let, let's just talk about that then, because there's two impediments for Japanese students. One is perfectionism, the fear of making mistakes, because maybe it's going to be hard for them to go from like that first, like you said, okay, go with what you know. And then if it doesn't work, move on to something else. That's hard for them. Mm. The, the other hard thing is the, the sort of interactional styles where, you know, I think I talked about it on the first podcast, complementary versus symmetrical, where Western, yeah. you know, Western style is more symmetrical and then Japanese style is more complementary where there's one person of higher status than the other. So they're, 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 those two things must, must really hurt them from getting to the center of your model. It's interesting because um, I, there's two stories that I always tell when I'm trying to explain what this means in real life. Uh, one of them uh, is uh, when I went to uh, a cinema in uh, Ishigaki-jima, which is way down south, past Okinawa, near Taiwan. 
uh, with a friend of mine who was in uh, it was an ALT down there for for a year. And one rainy day, we were like, well, we can't do anything outside. Let's go and watch a movie. And I don't even remember the movie we went to go and see. Um, it was long ago. I'm old. Um, and so it was it was Wokelish starring Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll not get sidetracked um okay. and so i didn't speak any japanese but my friend who had been studying it and we were with people who'd been there for a long time and so they said whatever the movie was and uh they said uh, and the person behind the the, the the so they want four tickets and the, the person behind the desk uh, this um young gentleman just said uh and they were like and like, yeah, I don't understand. He's like, I don't understand English. And they're like, no, 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 we're, we're speaking Japanese to you. Um, but he looked up, saw foreigners, and just immediately just went, everything that's coming out of their mouth is going to be incomprehensible to me. So I'm just going to wait until they finish speaking, and then I'm going to tell them I don't understand. And his manager had to tap him on the shoulder, move him out of the way, and and, and sell us the four tickets. The the flip side of that I, I, I happened when I was with my then-girlfriend, now my wife, in England, where we were like, oh God, we're really, it's, uh, we're really tired. It's end of Saturday. We, we, we've got to get on this train, but we, we, we want some uh, sandwiches. So we went into a supermarket and she went up to a person uh, stacking shelves and said, excuse me, could you tell me where the sandwiches are? Perfectly then, perfectly fine. What, uh, you know, Japanese are taught to do, you know, could you tell me that's like, it's a polite form. Um, and the person just looked at her and went, I don't understand. Mm. And she stopped and looked at me, and all I said to him was, sandwiches, mate. <laughs> and and he said, oh, yeah, aisle 13. <laughs> and, and because he'd looked like up and fair. saw this. Yeah, he, but yeah. he'd looked up and he saw this, you know, this Japanese lady standing in front of him, and immediately he'd shut down as well. So that's why I always try and talk about the goal and the intention. It's like you want to get some sandwiches and you're not going to get shut down by the fact that the person isn't initially listening to you. And oftentimes mm. when the person says they don't understand you, it's not your fault. Mm. So mm -hmm. just by either repeating it, that's the first negotiation strategy, repeat, try and, re try and engage, then change something, simplify, get your focus. If she just repeated, if she just said sandwiches, we'd have got there. Um, but... So have you found your in in your applied linguistics, you know, the application to the classroom procedures? Are you fine? This is working with your students, or do you do you find it's it's still a huge challenge to get them to understand this 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 concept, get past the perfectionism? Um, well, because I only have the students for well, it's the same thing with most places. I don't get to see them progress from first to second to third to fourth, and you know, down down the line. Like that's not how the courses work. You see them for fifteen weeks in one semester. So it's more about trying to change their the way that they approach the use of the language, not as uh, as exemplified by the model as some artifact from a distant land that they must achieve. And they must make that journey across the surface of the mm -hmm. of the globe to you know achieve the British or American English that they that they that they want to produce. Um, just change their idea that language is a tool, and it can be adapted to fit the context. Um, and it's important to make sure you know what you're you're doing. And by showing that the you know often something that sounds like wrong English can be the most efficient. Um, not wrong English, but you know what I mean? That it isn't what they expect the language, right. the effective use of language to be, um, that they can be more efficient users of the language. Once you get that, and this is the, the pushback that I get from times, but what about testing? What about proficiency? You'll get there, but you'll get there faster if you are interested in learning the, the different ways of achieving a goal. You'll you'll start to see how the bits and pieces fit together uh, faster if you have that idea of achieving a goal and you have the intention of getting there. Well, that's one thing that's that's hurting Japanese speakers is there is no sort of standardized speaking test. And I, I would hope that if they do, if the government does decide to do something that's standardized, that you would mm. be involved in this because I think that's an important skill to learn, not just a, a perfectionism. I don't even know how they would go about designing it. So if they do end well, up, you know, making a test that like you talk about the goal and the intention, that's a lot of the there, there's this disconnect between 
what people are tested on in high school and junior high school and, and you know, their entrance exams. There's really no speaking component to the college entrance English exam. So there's sort of a right. lack of motivation, right? Yeah, and um, I've had a, a conversation with a, a friend of mine who's a, a much, much uh, deeper understanding of um, language testing than me. And he, he said, well, look, ETS and uh, the British Council, so like TOEIC, TOEFL, um, IELTS, they're not interested in changing the under underpinnings of their tests because they are used for students to move from one place in the world to another. So to move to the right. UK or North America, like that's what they're designed for. And they're very good at, at those standardized tests are very good for that purpose. So you're not going to get it in the, you're not going to get the um, changes that you want in their uh, tests because that's their business model. That's what they're there to do. They're there so to they're do. testing the surface in your model, uh, essentially. Yes, but, but that's but that's fit for purpose. Like you, you can't right. criticize the test for for not testing the thing that they're not designed to do. And don't even well, especially want to TOEFL. Do it. If someone wants to study at a university abroad, you know that's yeah. you know going across the surface in your model. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the test would have to be something different. Uh, it would have to be. I, I've I've talked about it with with various people and trying to design a speaking test where there are artificial constraints. Um, there used to be, I don't know if it's still run this way or exactly this way anymore. There used to be, um, peer to peer interview tests in the Cambridge exams, um, where the, where there would be an observer watching two people trying to achieve a goal, trying to just get through, you know, introduce yourself, ask them about their background, then ask them these questions and provide follow-up questions. And that's the kind of, of test that I think would work for speaking where, you give them a, a set of challenges. You introduce artificial constraints. So route A doesn't work. The thing that you've you know practiced in your language classes doesn't work first time. How are you going to achieve the goal? Um, and so we're, we're looking at different ways of, uh, of doing that now. Like that's where the research is heading. All right. A, a, couple, a couple quick questions. With, sure. with the fact that there are more L2 speakers and L1 English speakers and this, mm. this model you're talking about in, in a hundred years, is, is the English language going to change? For example, is the TH sound going to be gone? There's some people that think it's just going to go away. Are well, there elements of English that um, you think uh, are going to essentially change? Yes. I and mean, it, it is changing all the time, like zones of contact between different uh, places. Um, like the, the, ideological background to a lot of Braj Khatri's work was the return of the diaspora to the native English speaking countries. So um, through colonialism, English went out into the world to places like India and into Singapore and the Philippines, as we discussed, Africa, uh, the Caribbean. Um, and then when the economic con conditions were right, it returned a few hundred years later, having been localized in these in these areas. And so when you read works by um, Randolph Quirk saying things like, well, you know, production of, of, of correct English is on a cline of uh, social um, uh, on, is on a cline of social status. The more money people make, the better English they use. Mm. Like this is what's coming out in the 1970s and then the and then uh branch in 1976 comes out with the paper the white man's burden the idea that oh dear this you know uh all these native english speaking countries are being burdened by the fact that this language that they uh, put out into the world is now coming back and it's causing them you know communication difficulties and um this is kind of the ideological basis uh, you know, the beginnings of the modeling of English, because it could no longer be said that it was only uh, controlled and owned by, you know, identifiable uh, geographical locations. A hundred years from now, this truth is going to be universally accepted. And so the TH sound, as you say, just as, as one example, it will exist, but it will exist in certain varieties of British English and, and American English. Um, but when you start to uh, communicate interculturally using English as the as the as the medium, then 
you know, the, the people who can add it and drop it, understanding, you know, the, 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 um, the abilities of the person they're talking to, they will be the more capable people. So that's the kind of um, changes that the model is trying to highlight that in real time, if people can understand the person who people, they, they know the person they're talking to will understand certain performance, you know, uh, points of, of English, they'll, it'll be more comprehensible. Then they're able to pick things up and drop things, use certain Lexis and not use it, use certain grammatical, um, constructions and phraseology or not use it. Um, those are going to be the most highly valued and proficient users of the language. All right. Um, all right. Well, that that's cool. I, I want to jump in a couple couple quick things, and then we, and then we can wrap it up. Again, if if people want to read the paper, it's called "A Global Model of English: How New Modeling Can Improve the Appreciation of English Usage in the Asia Pacific Region." Uh, just some just some advice for young researchers or young academics. What's what, what's your strategy about writing, preparing? Do you, do you have a sort of routine that that you that you apply? Oh, for writing it, papers. Yeah, is it is I, I talked with um, uh, Harumi the la, the last episode, and she said it's kind of mm-hmm. like me. She does most of her writing in the off season, where some some people say, no, no, you got to do it every single day, no matter what time what time of the year. What's your What's your process for you know working on projects, developing projects, finishing projects, that sort of thing? Well, uh, practically, um, you'll know as a as a as a family man. Um, the idea of, of being able to keep to a strict writing schedule every day is, is not necessarily practical. Um, but I would say that um, always having uh, an open document that you can, when you've just got five or ten free noodling minutes, that you can just go in and, and write some ideas down, write some things down, um, or having a you know, pad and paper and just, just ideas of things and just always having like a, an active document. It might not have a structure. You might not know where things are going to be in the paper at this particular time. I mean, I, as an example, I go back to, I had a big presentation that I had to do. I had to travel to Shizuoka and I was going from Fukuoka. And so I, was, I had to get like the, the 7am plane. So I knew I was going to have to get up at, uh, at five. Um, and as is always the case, you end up, you know, waking up and checking the clock at one, checking the clock at two. And at mm-hmm. one point I just thought, I'm going to get up. And I, I got up and it was like two o'clock in the morning. And I, I just started, you know, quick Google scholar searching all these different kind of papers and going on a bit of a deep dive. And every time I found it, a thing, I'll just write it in a different document, write it in this document. And it, it um, uh, you know, different quotes and different people and different citations and things like that. Mm. And by 5 a.m. when I was, you know, ready to, you know, get up and get for the plane, I had, you know, a thousand or so words, um, mostly borrowed from Mm -hmm. other places, but I had this kind of structure. So when you get that time, um, just have a document ready to go that you're just ready to noodle on for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and you never know that over time that, that turns into, um, you know, uh, a paper, the, the truth is that um, the global model, when this uh, when this paper came back from Asia Pacific World, and they said the thing that you're missing from this paper because it's mostly descriptive, is the model. You say mm. these are the these are the things that um, an, a properly calibrated model needs to be. Show us the model, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to get this published now because I don't have it. And I mm. I just kept writing, and I I you know at the end of class, I'd, I'd kind of draw things, um, on the chalkboard and, you know, and I'm like, Oh, it would look like this. It would look like this. And then, and then one night it literally was this thing. I was like, okay, I know exactly what it is. I've still got that, I've got the piece of paper. So I, I got up out of bed and I, and I drew it and I, I wrote these lines on it and this was what an interaction would look like. And this is what, uh, these were the people that would be here. And these are people that are here. And then boom, I went to bed, slept, got up the next day and wrote that section of the paper. And if you're not, uh, you know, if you're not enabling yourself to keep your work with this kind of plasticity that you can still, uh, you know, work with it until you see the form that it should be, um, it's always going to be difficult to, to restart it. So write as often as possible, but the things that you write, they don't have to be relevant. They don't have to be, uh, you know, exactly on point or perfectly, you know, in my case, perfectly grammatical. Um, but it just needs to be an ongoing, uh, place where you're putting down the things that your mind is telling you. And, and how does, uh, how does the, the, the grant application writing figure into this? Because I, I've applied for grants the past two years, 
And I think you gave me advice and I, and I've heard mm. this other places too. You just got to sort of make it into your routine, like in your yearly schedule, this is when the grants applications come. But I know there's a the grant application in Japan is in October. I'm actually already mm. starting to think about it because I need to do my research, you know, next year for something else. So how does that fit into you? How do, the grant writing does that is that sort of an open document as well? well okay, I want to do this, and okay, I'll need this amount of money, or is that something that you just do a few weeks before the grants are due? No, 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 you, you're right. It's it's what you said before. It's the it's the former. Um, uh, because grant writing, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but in Japan, the the grant needs to be. There's so many different sections to it. Some of them are very formal, and some of them are very you know uh, well, it's all formal, but it's formulaic. Um, so when it comes to, you know, protection of uh, subjects, uh, research subjects, rights and things like that. Um, but also it needs to be an ongoing thing because the items that you want to put on your grant application, it's impossible to put together in a few weeks or a month the concept, the methodology, the expected results and know the materials that you need to get you there. So um, there's so many different kind of software options, so many different hardware options. Um, once you know what the, the, the media that are out there to help you achieve your research aims, it can also help you to um, devise a methodology that maximizes the, the, the input, the, the data collection that you're going to get from these, these various avenues. So it, it very much has to be an ongoing process. I mean, uh, not to you know instantly date this episode but about a week from now we'll know if my grant application has been accepted for the next three years if mm -hmm. it if it isn't then the next day or that afternoon i'll go back to the application document and i'll start looking at areas where um I, I can see that it, it could be improved. And then thankfully over recent years in Japan, um, you get feedback on the, on the weak and the strong points of your, of your application that comes, uh, you know, about a month later. So that's going to factor in as well. So if I get it great, good, but if I don't, the work starts again immediately to reform that document, because that is the research I want to do. You don't just throw that out and think, no, I'm going to devise a completely new thing, unless you've got a new passion. I mean, of course, we are always open to that. But if that's the thing you really wanted to do, you're going to have to wait another, at least another year to get it. But at least you're, you know, based on the experience and based on the feedback, you can make it better. Um, so I think it, it also has to be an ongoing process because uh, it, it's not going to be one thing that, that torpedoes an application. It's going to be, it's usually um, a cascade of things. So you haven't identified the right area, which has affected your methodology, which has affected your um, selection of materials, which has affected your budget request. Like all of these things, they're manifold. So um, it, it's also an ongoing process. Yeah. Mm. How, how do you balance in your own language learning pursuits? Are you are you at a point where you you're you're content with your Japanese ability, or is it something you have to to work on? Uh, I work on it uh, as it relates to the practicalities of it. Um, since getting the tenured job here, I've been added to a lot more uh, committees, um, and you know all of the paperwork, the emails, the interactions, the 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 meetings themselves, they're all in Japanese. So I have to focus on the practicalities of it. So a lot of it is um, is lexical, trying to work out. Um, exactly what people are talking about. So I can understand the, the, the grammar and what, but when individual words get dropped in, I'll be like, ooh, ooh, cranky. I need to find out what exactly what that means. And then the next meeting goes a lot more, uh, a lot more smoothly. So, um, I, I kind of learn for, uh, practical reasons, not for, um, any kind of focus study anymore. All right. And last question, maybe most important advice on how to stalk the British national rugby team for people out there. <laughs> uh, you're referring to um, the for those of you that are not interested in, in rugby um, or uh, nefarious activities, you can stop listening now. Um, but uh, last year, 2019 was the uh, World Cup in Japan. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was wonderful to share it with my, uh, you know, my family and um, get the kids involved in it. Um, and one of the ways that we did it early is um, my wife's not the biggest rugby fan. And by not the biggest, I mean not at all. But she's lived with me for the last 20 years. So she knows that it's, it's essentially my life. Um, 
So she said, hey, do you know where the English rugby team, uh, uh, no, do you know where the Japanese rugby team um, went uh, for their uh, pre-2015 World Cup uh, training camp? And I said, no, I don't know. She said, ah, they went to Miyazaki. They went to the Sheraton down in Miyazaki. Now, my wife's from Miyazaki. Um, so this is why she knew it. And she's like, and think about it. The coach of the England team is uh, the coach of the England team was the coach of the Japanese team. So he's definitely going to take them to Miyazaki. I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. She's like, okay. Well, when's the first English game? And so we looked at that. So, okay, let's track back two weeks from there. They'll definitely be at the Sheraton at that time. Let's go down and, <laughs> and, and we'll book into the hotel. Uh, and we did this like back in March and we weren't going until, uh, September. Um, so we booked it all in and it was like, and so we got this decent rate and we, we bought a full size, a replica rugby ball, uh, and, we, and a signing pen. And we went down there and we walk in as literally something out of a dream. I'm wearing my, my hometown kit, which is Rotherham, uh, in England. And we walk into the Sheraton. And it's not even time to check in yet. We're going to have to like drop our bags and, and go some do somewhere else. And I walk in and I'm like, oh my god, that's that's Billy Vunipola. That's that's you know the, the starting number eight. He's one of the, and he's a, and he's a big unit. He's like the size of a imagine like a refrigerator had legs. So he's he kind of just, he ambles into the lobby, and I'm like and, and I'm like I'm I'm literally shaking. Like my wife's like, why are you shaking? I'm like that that's that that's 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 Billy. That's Billy. And I was like, I'll get my kids to do. It. So I gave the ball and the pen to my youngest who tucked it under his arm and ran up to him and said, and sign please. And then I kind of, I kind of followed like, oh, oh, you scamp it. Sorry to interrupt you there. <laughs> and he looks at me and he goes, can I take a picture of your shirt? Huh? And I was like, oh my God. Uh, yes, sir. of course you can. Of course you can. Now, if there's no way of saying no to something that's, you know, six foot three and a hundred and. 40 kgs, but I wouldn't have said no anyway. Turns out his cousin plays for Rotherham. Oh. So he knew the the thing. So he takes a picture of the shirt and he and he and he emails it off. Then we take a picture next to him. I literally I tried to put my hand around him and couldn't. And I'm not a small unit myself, but he's he's a he's a big he's a big piece of kit. Um and so we, we spent the next uh day and a half kind of wandering around. And kind of just seeing, oh my God, this doesn't feel, and and getting strange compliments from from the starting players and things like that. And so we've got this ball. We've got, I think we've got eleven people to sign it. And then on the last morning, we're like, okay, we're done. Um, we're packed up. We're going to get in the car. We're going to head back to my wife's uh, hometown. And and we walk into the cafe. And I've just put all the cases in the in the car. And we said, I'll meet you in the cafe. So we go to the cafe, and literally sitting two seats down from us is. Eddie Jones, the England coach, all by himself. And my wife's like, you should go and ask him. I'm like, but I can't. She's like, of course you can. It's, you know, he's just a guy. I was like, but it's Eddie Jones. And so my wife's like, right, we're doing it. So she goes up and, and, and she introduces herself. And Eddie's, Eddie's mother is Japanese and his wife's Japanese. And so he, and, and so, and she goes, oh, can I have a pic, can I take a picture with you? And he's like, oh yeah, sure, mate. And, and so so my kids rush in and I'm taking this and I, I'm on an iPhone and I, and I took about seven different photos, one of one of which came out. And after I shook his hand, said, good luck. And again, I had to have a, have a sit down after that because that was quite an emotional experience. But of the seven photos I took, only one of them was clear because all of the others, wow. are just, my hand is shaking, shaking. so much. Mm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I got the ball to as a sign and uh, as we're walking out the uh, cafe, Joe Thock and a singer who's a, another great player walks in. My wife's going, do you want to get the signature? I was like, no, no, we've got Eddie. We're done. We're done. It's fine. We're good. And uh, yeah. Um, so uh, living in Japan and having a wife from the, uh, the, the, the favorite place in Japan of the England uh, rugby coach uh, really worked out. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but after the two of the games were canceled uh, because of the typhoon, Mm -hmm. And one of them was the England game against France. And immediately he took them all back down to Miyazaki <laughs> for oh. a week of, of relaxation. So, uh, yeah, he definitely uh, likes it down there. But, uh, yeah, that's what you've got to do if you want to. Preparation, important. Plan ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And, uh, and I, I, have, I, guess... I have two kids as well who will run in and do the, do the hard work for you. And you're, you're, you're thinking about starting a podcast, right? 
Uh, when's yeah, that going to come um, out? You sound like you're better at this than I am. You should probably. You should probably. When's that going to happen? Uh, it, when when the concept is 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 fully um, rounded, I the what uh, the what center? I, the the concept. Uh, the concept. I've oh, always, okay. I think it's the call the, center. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking big. It's a I'm big doing. project. Man. <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, but um, I've always had um, a good take on. Uh, other people's research projects. So I'm always the person that people come to and they say, I want to do this. Uh, this is the this is the outcome I want to get to, and how do I get there? Uh, and so, if there was a if there was a way I could do a podcast, that was basically the uh, the concept was kind of like the the, the research whisperer mm. that we would talk about it and then we would uh, think of you know put in different uh, uh, think of different methodologies and, and ways and, and share ideas and kind of make it like a, a research project counseling center podcast oh, cool. um where we'd look at um ways of uh hybridizing past methodologies to uh to achieve a research goal um so uh, as soon as i get that up and, and running you'll uh, you'll be my first guest well oh that, I'd, I'd be a perfect guest i'm a mess i need a lot of i need a lot of advice <laughs> it was supposed to be a perfect be guest <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's supposed to be a mutual thing where where uh, I have my problems and you have yours, and we oh. kind of uh, we we work our way towards you know uh, possible solutions. Cool. All right. Well, well. Thanks for thanks again for coming on the podcast again. The the article is a global model of English: how new modeling can improve the appreciation of English usage in the Asia Pacific region. Is it okay if I put your your email on the the show description if people want to email you about anything? That's perfectly fine. I'm always uh, happy to connect with uh, other people in the field. And maybe in a future episode, we can talk about uh, linguistic imperialism. <laughs> I couldn't even say it. It's my favorite word, <laughs> linguistic imperialism. I want to talk about that. All right, well, I like saying that. Yeah, you work on the pronunciation of it, and then we'll talk about it next time. All right, maybe in a couple months I can get it, get it done. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, well, uh, thanks for the time, and I'll, uh, I guess we'll have to meet over beer sometime. When, uh, oh, absolutely. There's some stuff, off-air stuff I want to talk to you about. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Looking forward to it.